Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Nurse Mama Show, the home of happy parents and healthy teens on American Family Radio. Here's your host, Dr. Jessica Peck. Everybody and welcome to the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast here on American Family Radio. I am your host, Dr. Jessica Peck, pediatric nurse practitioner, professor, author, and mom of four. And we have a great episode for you today. We're going to be talking about mental health, but I want you to stay tuned because this has a twist. We're going to talk about something that I think maybe you're not expecting, because a lot of times on this show, we talk about issues our kids are facing. Today, we're going to flip the script. We're going to take a look in the mirror, and we're going to talk about what happens when we, as parents, have anxiety and have mental health issues. Now, as a pediatric nurse practitioner, I can tell you I see this all the time. I may see a kid in clinic who looks anxious, and then I look at the parent anxiously scrolling through their phone. Okay, I'm talking to me too, (laughs) so don't think that I'm judging anybody, but today we're going to talk to an amazing author who's just come out with a new book. So today we have Christy Bulware. She suffered a nervous breakdown. Yep, I just said those words right there on the podcast, a nervous breakdown caused by severe panic and anxiety disorder in 2011. Her pain turned into purpose, and she founded Fearless Unite, a nonprofit organization. She is an international speaker, author of Nervous Breakthrough, right here, finding freedom from fear and anxiety in a world that feeds it. She's happily married to the love of her life, Troy, and they have three beautiful children together. Christy, thank you so much for joining us today. Jessica, thank you so much for having me. This is such an important topic, and I'm grateful to be here. Well, let's just dive right in. You know, one of the things that you said in this book, a quote that just jumped out at me right from the beginning, exhaustion and hurry aren't a badge of honor. Oh my goodness. If that was not so convicting, that is something I struggle with all the time. I always feel like I'm telling my kids, hurry up and I'm tired. Like Those are the two two word phrases I use all of the time. Tell, Let's start there. Why are exhaustion and hurry not a badge of honor? I read a quote. I'm going to hit you with another quote that kind of inspired this exhaustion and hurry aren't a badge of honor in me from Dr. Archibald Hart. And when I was experiencing my nervous breakdown, I was led to a book called The Anxiety Cure. Now, Dr. Archibald Hart is no longer with us anymore, but he says, we were designed for camel travel, not supersonic jet behavior. And at that moment, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm like running around like the Jetsons, supersonic <laughs> jet behavior, right? And, right? and and we were designed for camel speed. And when we think about how we are hurrying and rushing and, and projecting that hurry and that rush on our children as well, I realized, wow, is there something in that? We were built for camel speed, yet we're running around at supersonic jet speed. So I just had to really get honest with myself. And I know we'll get more into my journey and my story, but why was I so hurried? Why was I so rushed? Why was that my new normal? And why why was I okay with that? And I had to really unpack that. And that's kind of where that exhaustion and hurry aren't a badge of honor came from. Well, let's talk about your story. What happened? I mean, even in reading this, Nervous Breakthrough, that is the title of your book. It is very hard, I think, for us to admit when we have trouble, and usually it comes to that point of crisis. But what was your journey like? 
for as long as I can remember, Jessica, I was obsessed with the applause of man. I was obsessed with success and achievement and, and winning the next big thing, making sure people knew that I was important and worthy. And so I was striving after all of these things. And I can go back to fourth grade and remember, you know, I was in theater and the uh, director came to me and said, hey, the star of the show is sick. Can you step in and save the day? And I remember, ooh, a chance to shine. I'll take it. And, and that followed me into high school where I'm campaigning to be the senior class president. And I was just making sure that I was stopped at nothing to win that presidency. And I did win. And then it follows me into college. And, you know, I'm basking in standing ovations for for my, um, you know, star performance of Catherine Sloper and the heiress. And and so it was like the the approval of man and, and the applause of man became what my soul lived for. And then I move into, um, I, I go to New York City and I, and I land a Screen Actors Guild job and I'm pushing and shoving my way to do all these auditions and make something of myself. And, and then that doesn't work out. So I come home and I decide to be the best saleswoman the world has ever seen. And I climb the corporate career ladder. And, you know, in 2011, when I'm, when I had my nervous breakdown, I was at the top of my game, Jessica. I was so successful. I had my master's degree. I was making over a hundred figure, you know, six figures, I'm sorry, six figures at, <laughs> at just such a young age. I've got, you know, beautiful children and awesome husband. And I, and I, I'm, you know, vacationing on the sunny beaches of Cancun. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I had my first panic attack. And at that time, while I was sipping on a fruity drink and, and, and enjoying my vacation, I had no idea that it was a panic attack. And I land in St. Louis after this nice vacation. I turn on my email because I'm a workaholic at this point. I'm striving. I'm achieving. I'm making something out of myself. I've missed over 200 emails. And I realized I start seeing black dots in my eyes. And I started getting this weird sensation on the right side of my body that was like tingling. And I knew I didn't feel right. And what wound up happening is I go home and I start having these back-to-back panic attacks. And Mm -hmm. it got so bad that one evening in the middle of the night, my whole right side of my body went went numb. And I felt like it was paralyzed. I couldn't, I could not move it. And so I call my primary care physician in the middle of the night. And I tell him what's experience, what I'm experiencing. He said, Christy, I think you're having a stroke. I need you to go to the emergency room right now. Well, I mean, any shred of peace I have at that time is completely <laughs> gone. So I right. go to the emergency room and uh, they do the whole nine yards, the cardiac screening, the, 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 I mean, everything you can do to test, to make sure that I'm not having a stroke, I'm not having a heart attack. They admit me to the hospital because my, my symptoms were pretty bad. I could not even sit in my hospital bed because I was, I, my body was so revved up. And so then the next day, the ER doc comes in, very nice man, and he just looks at me. And he said, hey, guess what? Nothing's wrong with you. You're okay. All the tests checked out okay. And honestly, at that moment, I wanted to punch him in the face because I thought, oh, no, 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 no. I am dying. There is something wrong with me right now. You cannot tell me nothing's wrong with me. And then he says, you have anxiety and panic. I need you to follow up with your primary care physician. And then at that point, sends me home with a prescription, Xanax, and says, there you go. And just like that, I left with what in the world is happening to me and a bottle of Xanax. What do I do with that? Follow up with your primary care physician. And it snowballed out of control from there. My body was stuck in flight or flight. 
and the adrenaline and the cortisol was coursing through my body and I was having back-to-back panic attacks and I was literally experiencing a nervous breakdown. Oh my goodness. I mean, so, so many things to unpack there, but first of all, just thank you for sharing your story so transparently. You know, anxiety is not something I've struggled with personally, but I do share in my book behind closed doors, my daughter's struggle with anxiety Mm. and her first panic attack. And here I am a pediatric nurse practitioner, and I'm giving her an asthma inhaler because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, she can't breathe. This must be an asthma attack. And I didn't even recognize it, Mm. but there the people who experience that feel like they're dying. And all of those symptoms that you described, I've heard over and over and over again. And it's easier for me now to recognize it now that I've walked through it as a professional, as a mom, as a wife. You know, my husband has struggled with anxiety, mm-hmm. but I think that it's hard for the person sitting there to think, okay, am I really not dying? Because first of all, it feels like I am. And second of all, what do I do with this label now that you've given me? Like, what what do I do with that? Because if I need to call into work and I have the flu, I call and say, I have the flu, I can't come in. But what do I say? Well, I thought I was dying, but I'm not. It's just anxiety. And I think people tend to minimize that. So how did you deal with the label and the stigma of that, you know, going forward? So, I mean, it gets worse, Jessica. I go home and I've got this prescription for Xanax and my panic attacks became back to back. I had hair falling out of my head. I couldn't eat. I was losing weight rapidly. My mental health deteriorated so much that um, in my darkest moments, I had suicidal thoughts. I didn't think that I was going to make it out of this. I literally thought that this was going to be my plot forever. I thought that I was going to have to just deal with the stigma and the label of severe panic and anxiety disorder forever. And the thought of that, that I would never overcome this and that this would be my story forever. The kingdom of darkness just set this thought in my mind of, what if you just use these guns? And and let me back up for a second. In our bedroom, my husband keeps hunting guns and mm-hmm. those guns are not loaded, but there was just, it was the thought of what if you used them? What if you just did that? Because that is going to be better than the hell that you're experiencing right now and having to deal with for the rest of your life. So there is a true, uh, spiritual darkness that comes with severe panic and anxiety disorder. And the the stigma of it, I'll never forget. I had to follow up with my primary care physician when I go in and see him after my hospital stay. And he looks at me and he says, Christy, you know, is your marriage okay? Are you, do you have, are you having finance issues? You know, are your children healthy? You know, are you experiencing a health situation? I'm like, doc, no, no, everything is great. I'm the most successful I've ever been in my life. My marriage is great. My children are beautiful. Fix me, fix me. What is wrong with me? And, you know, he just thumbs through my, through my chart. It was still paper records at that point. And, and then he's like, how many hours do you work a week? And at that point, I was proud of my workaholic nature. I was like, oh, it's like 80 hours. Like, I'm just, I'm killing it out there in the world, you know? And I was like proud of that moment. And he's like, mm, yeah, okay. Well, you have severe panic and anxiety disorder. And I, he looked at me and he said, Christy, I'm gonna give you some medication. I'm gonna prescribe you something. And it's gonna help you. But let me tell you something. If you don't go home and do the work and figure out why you got to where you are today, here's what's going to happen. 
you're going to just keep coming back to my office and I'm going to keep upping your medicine dosage. And it's going to get to the point where it's so high where I can't help you anymore. And at that point I saw his lips moving, but then I just had this like fog of like, how did I get here? And I don't want to be the woman that keeps coming in for more medication and more medication and to the point where he can't help me anymore. Like that stuck with me. That resonated. I realized I have to do something. Well, you and I talked before we jumped on to record about this concept of holistic health because mental health is such a complex interaction. It's our brain chemistry. It's our genes. It's our environment. It's the stressors we put on ourselves. It's the stressors we can't control that are just placed on us and all of those things together. And we are body, mind, and soul. We are complex, holistic human beings. And I often talk about we cannot fix mental health issues in a singular plane. You can't just take medicine. You can't just go to church. You can't just do counseling. You need a holistic approach and a team around you. And I think what makes your story so powerful is that you've lived that. You have walked that through and you have done that. And I'm sure that it wasn't easy because as we talked about and as you talk about in your book, there's no, you know, when you went to the doctor, which it sounds like it was an amazing visit and they were responded so wisely, they didn't also say, okay, here's a church for you to plug in. Here's a counselor. Here's all of these things that you need. You had to assemble that yourself. So let's talk about that. Mm, separating our physical, spiritual, and mental health is not working. It's not working. I mean, you probably know the statistics better than I do, but the readmission rates for people that are dealing with depression, anxiety, or alone are through the roof. And it's because you can't just throw them a bottle of Xanax and say, here, take this. You have to go home and do the work. I like to use the analogy of like a bow. If you're bow hunting, if you pull the bow back, it's hard and it's difficult to pull back, but you have to pull back to get the power to plow forward. And sometimes we have to go back into our childhood. We have to go back into wounds, things that have happened to us and figure out how did we get ourselves into this? Why was I so obsessed with achievement and success and worldly things and money and pride? Where did all that come from? Well, first of all, I didn't have a deep relationship with Jesus Christ at that point. I like to say that I was a CEO Christian, which was Christmas, <laughs> Easter only. And, and, and that's all the extent of my relationship was. And it was a religion. It wasn't a relationship. So it wasn't until I was down on my knees in between back-to-back -back panic attacks, crying out to this, if there is a God kind of thing, please help me. I had a surrender moment. I had a moment where I had to untie my superwoman cape and lay it at the feet of Jesus, realizing that I'm not in control and that he is. And for my whole life, I had lived a life thinking, lived a lie thinking that I was in control and that I was all that in a bag of chips. And that's <laughs> what I believed about myself. And it had to come to this breakdown moment. It's, it's where the play on words from the book comes from. It was a breakdown to a breakthrough. And I am so grateful for the pain and the hell that I went through because I I wouldn't be where I am today and I wouldn't have my relationship with Jesus Christ if it wasn't for that breakdown. So the holistic approaches, I, I get so maddened sometimes when when our our church says, well, you just need to read your Bible more. You, you just need to pray more. You don't have enough faith if you're experiencing fear and anxiety. Is that really the case? Because 
there is 404 references in scripture about overcoming fear. Now, some of them are reverence to God and awe to God, but most of them are over battling, overcoming fear. If God is going to remind us that much about fear and anxiety, then really it's not about living a life where we're never going to fear. It's learning how to fear less, having faith in Jesus, learning from our experiences, growing, having perseverance. Those are the things that matter so much. But then I also get so frustrated with our medical community because we're just, we are passing out antidepressants like they're candy. And, and, and we're just saying, here, take this pill. And that pill, as as you heard from my doctor, it can only help you so much. The answer is not Celexa. The answer is Jesus Christ. And let Celexa be a tool to help you overcome. Celexa is just an antidepressant out there for, for those of you that don't know. So I just feel like coming together and 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 from a spiritual standpoint, and I, I talk about like a tricycle. Okay, tricycle has three wheels. And if we're body, soul, and spirit, let's say one wheel doesn't have any air in it, all right? Our bodies need balance because too much or too little of something's going to create problems. We need proper parts of air and all of our tires to function correctly. It's so true. And you talked a lot about doing the work. You said you have to go home and do the work. And I imagine there's people out there listening that say, what is that like? Because doing the work seems scary. It seems insurmountable. You think maybe the hell you know is better than the hell that you don't know. Mm -hmm. But having looked at your experience where you maybe didn't want to die, but you can't imagine living going forward and seeing you on the other side of it and saying, yeah, I did the work and it was worth it. And I found healing and maybe not perfection, you know, because you talk in your book about having setbacks and, and, you know, having challenges, but what is the work? What does that mean? Can you demystify that? The work is first and foremost realizing that self-help is no help at all. And I think we as a society are trying to fix our problems by depending on ourselves to meet our needs. And that's self-help. And what we need to realize is that there is a God a holy, amazing God. And I love the scripture. It's Psalms 121, one through two. It says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? That work is realizing that our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So first and foremost, we have to get real with we are not God. God is God, and we have to lift our eyes up to Him and let Him be our help. That is first and foremost. Then, once we've surrendered, we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we are walking a surrendered life to Him, then we've got to go back into our past. I realized that for whatever reason, my driven tendencies is what made me become a workaholic. And a part of it was I was obsessed with what the world tells us success is. And what I needed to realize is understand, well, wait a minute, what does God say success is? And in 1 Kings, he talks about success is about obeying God. That's it. And when you'll just obey God, you will be successful in all your ways. But what the world tells us is, is go get you some, be a boss lady, get, get, you know, make sure that you hustle and, and you, you use busy as a badge of honor. And the world says that you're successful when you've, you know, you have achievements and favor and, and money and all of these things. But God says, no, 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 no. I don't care about any of that. 
I just need you to be obedient to me. So I had to deconstruct what success looked like in my life. And I think there's a lot of people that need to do that hard work. What am I striving after? What am I trying to achieve? Who am I trying to prove my worth to? Because the only person that matters is Jesus, what he thinks of me. Yet we are constantly striving for the approval of man and the applause of man in almost everything that we're doing. So that was hard work for me too, really coming to grips with, I just am here to make Jesus happy, to make God happy. And so that was really hard work too, learning to forgive uh, walking in unforgiveness uh, rots your bones. I mean, bitterness rots your bones. So I had to really go back and forgive some people that have hurt me. Uh, learning just how God made me, understanding what my strengths and weaknesses are. And I'm not a Betty Crocker. I'm not great in the kitchen. And I used to feel like I needed to be. And it set me free when I realized, wait a minute, I don't have the gift of hospitality, but I have the gift of teaching and leading. And once I were stepping into those God-given roles that the Lord you know, has gifted me with and not trying to be someone else, that helped set me free too. I can so relate to a lot of what you're saying because we are acculturated now to live at the speed of a smartphone, for one thing, Mm. and we are in a prism of perfection, especially as parents. I think it's hard because we look around and we see what everyone is presenting as their perfect front, and we accept that as reality. And we think, oh, I wish my family was close like that. Oh, I wish my kids would take a picture with me like that. Oh, I wish my kids would do a TikTok dance with me or whatever, you know, the case may be. And I remember in my early days of parenting, having so much anxiety around what I looked like as a parent to other parents. I remember walking into one of my kids' kindergarten Christmas parties, and I was looking around, and this was right when Pinterest came out, and all of these cookies were monogrammed with these little (sighs) kindergartners' initials on them. And, you know, they had individual stockings. And I remember thinking, this is nicer than my wedding reception was. (laughs) Like I got married in a gym. Like my kids ask me, what are these orange lines on the floor? I'm like, honey, that's a basketball court. That's where (laughs) I had my wedding reception and feeling like, how can I live up to these other moms? But that was where I'm fixing my eyes on what society says makes me successful as a mom. And the lie about that is the goalpost is always changing. It's Mm. always, the standard is always changing and you're having to adapt. And I think that creates so much anxiety. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and our parenting journey, we can know that that goalpost never changes because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think about two verses as you were talking. One is delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But the trick in that verse is that though as you delight yourself in the Lord, He changes your heart Mm. and aligns His desires, Mm. your desires with His. The other verse I think about is, you know, the, uh, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I thought about that as I walked through my trauma, you know, doing my work and working through my past and thinking that. Why are you withholding relationship restoration with me? I'm sure you're thinking, why are you withholding healing from anxiety? That's a good thing. But you can learn to trust that the Lord is good and He is kind and He is gracious. And if He allows something in your life, it is for your good and for His glory. Okay, we're preaching now, Christy. (laughs) We're just having church up in here and I love it. But I want to go back to, let's talk about this because let's bring it home to parents. One of the things you talk about in your book, which I really love, 
is help yourself before you help others. We think about when we're on the plane and the flight attendant comes by and says, put on your oxygen mask before you put on the oxygen mask of your kids. And even the first time I heard that, I thought, no, I mean, I'm for my kid. I'm going to take care of my kid first. But we, especially when we're talking about mental health, talk about what that was like for you as a mom. In my darkest moments, and I talked to you about the suicidal thoughts that I had, I also missed my son's first steps. And it wrecks me to this day still that I was having back-to-back panic attacks. I could not leave my bedroom and I missed my son's first steps. So I got myself into this mess. So yes, I'm very passionate about what you were just teaching about put on your own oxygen mask first. And I think sometimes with with that example that we've all heard, I th- I go a little bit further and I think, wait a minute, how many more people could I help if I will just take care of myself first? And I think that's really important for us to kind of process through. And I think in Christian circles, we sometimes think that caring for ourselves can be selfish. But anytime I start to think that caring for myself is selfish, I look at Jesus's examples that self-care is holy. And I'm just going to give you three real quick. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And Luke 6, 12 to 13, before he made a major decision, this was, this was bringing his disciples in. It said he prayed to God all night. And then after Jesus found out that John the Baptist was beheaded, he's got crazy grief coming in through him. Here's what it says he did in Matthew 14, 13. He left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. And then if you're still not convinced that Jesus went alone a lot to be, there's one in Mark 6.30. And uh, he said they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. Jesus was all about getting alone, having quiet time, caring for himself. Do you really think that Jesus could have done all that he did if he didn't practice silence and solitude and self-care and being by himself and getting with the Father and learning to hear from him? So I just, self-care is holy and it's important. We have to care for ourselves before we can care for others. And mamas, that is so important. We have to put our oxygen mask on first, take care of us before we can go out and take care of others. And while I was recovering with severe panic and anxiety disorder, I had to come first. And that was very difficult for me. It was very difficult, but I had to get the healing that I needed so that I could be a strong mama for my children. And I'm so grateful that I took the time, did the work and took care of myself. And, you know, I mean, I think about that and we can beat ourselves up with mom guilt. You know, I share in my book a story of you know having relational trauma and just ha- struggling with depression and being on a recliner, just on the phone again, trying to manage conflict and just crying my eyes out. And my husband comes out with a digital camera because we didn't have smartphones at that time. But so this was effort, you know, that he went to go get our camera. He comes back and he takes a photo of me, like in my sweats, with my messy bun, no makeup, like crying, looking horrible, a mess. And I felt so much anger and indignation in that moment, Mm. just telling him, how could you do that? How could you betray me like that? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? And Christy, I'll tell you just in a very gentle and loving way, Oh, see, now I'm going to get all emotional here. He turned that camera around and he said, honey, this is what our kids see every day. They see you mourning a life you'll never have while real life is passing you by. 
And it was in that moment that something shifted and I just knew I needed a new way forward. And I was trying to fix it the best way I knew how, because I thought, oh, I can't be a good mom for my kids unless I fix this, you know, relationship. And I realized I was trying to control everything and I wasn't relying on God to take care of that for me. And I think, Christy, what I would tell you is that we do the best that we can with what we know and what we have until we know more and then we do better. And God is a God who restores. That's the thing that I have learned about God in this journey is that when you experience loss, when you experience devastation, trial, hardship, we rejoice in those various trials because the testing of our faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work that we may be perfect and complete. And now I look at you know the relationship I have with my kids and it was so worth the fight. And oh my gosh, time is going by so fast, but there is one more thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go. I want to talk to you about toxic thoughts because I think as people, as humans, And as parents, especially, we allow ourselves to immerse our minds in toxic thoughts. When I think about the self-talk that I even have as a parent, like I think, well, you're a failure, you know, like, oh, great. You just totally messed up your kid for life. You know, we have this negative talk that we would never say to anybody else, but you have a great chapter in here on toxic thoughts and the five R's. So whatever you want to say about that, because I want everybody to read the book, go get it and read the book. But what would you give us as a, as a little appetizer right now? I was not able to overcome fear and anxiety until I got this. This what I'm about ready. I'm going to give you a little appetizer of it, but I'm, I promise you that until we learn how to renew our mind and take care of our toxic thoughts, overcoming fear and anxiety is next to impossible. Dr. Caroline Leaf has this really great uh, quote where she says, every time you have a thought, it's actively changing your brain and your body for better or worse. And so we'll, we'll, my take on that is your thoughts matter. They matter. And scripture is very clear about this. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we have to learn how to take these toxic thoughts captive and renew our mind because our thoughts will impact our body and mind. Our thoughts will impact our anxiety. They will create anxiety. They will snowball out of control if we don't take care of it quickly. So I have five steps. It's recognize your negative thoughts and it's understanding what is the theme of the negative thought that you're thinking. Replace it then with scripture and what are the lies you're believing about yourself and find a scripture to replace it. Rewrite it. So then it's take time to rewrite those lies that you're believing into truths, then you recite it, which is take a moment to speak it out loud. Don't just write it. I mean, there is power in getting things out and speaking them and then repeat, 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 do it over and over and over again. And so one little example of that is I care too much about what people think. I'm a people pleaser. That causes a lot of fear and anxiety in my life. So what is the theme there? Well, if I care too much about what people think, then the theme of that is people pleasing. So what does God's word say then? God's word says, I cannot serve God and man at the same time. That's Galatians 1.10. So now I'm going to rewrite this and I'm going to say, I will stop people pleasing and focus only on pleasing God. And then I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to repeat it. And then the kind of bonus number six is refuse. 
What plan are you going to put in place so that you continue to do this practice every single day? I am thought dumping almost every night. I'm looking at the lies that I'm believing about myself and I'm going through these steps and I'm doing them almost every single day. This is a process that we're going to have to do over and over and over. And guess what? When I have victory over one lie, another lie comes in. Hey, Christy, you don't hear God's voice. You don't hear God's voice. So that's another lie I'm going to have to rebuttal and get rid of and 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 work through the R's. So our toxic thinking, we're not paying enough, enough attention to it. We have to learn how to renew our minds every single day. Well, and that's what you were talking about in doing the work. That is the work right there. And, you know, it's things that sound so simple, but they're not easy to change our patterns of behavior. And you have to practice it over time and be intentional. And parents out there who are listening, I'm telling you, things are caught and not taught in our homes. And so if your child is struggling with their mental health, they're struggling with anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts, and you may think, I don't struggle with that. Maybe you don't. But maybe you do, but regardless, adopting some of these practices like Christy is talking about, they will help your child. And when you're doing them, they will do them. You can model that and say, let me step into this journey with you. I don't just expect you to learn this. This is something that's going to help me too. Let's do this together as a family and you will reap the rewards of that, honestly, of that investment. Well, Christy, I could talk to you forever, but we have come to the end of our time together. And I want to ask the question that we ask everybody, if you could just give one word of hope for healthy relationships for and your family, what is that one word of hope that you have for us? Jessica, I feel like we're such kindred hearts. I mean, first of all, I, I, my reception was on a basketball court too. I just, I just need you to know that. And what, yes. And what you just said is literally in like my notes of what I wanted to say to end this. And, and basically I said, model to your children, what you want to see them model to you. Like that's the most beautiful. And, and in one of your podcasts, you talked about how faith is caught, not taught. And that just put a pin in my heart where I was like, that is so good and so true. And it resonates so deeply with me. I think we need to be vulnerable with our kids and in, in an appropriate way. I think we need to practice forgiveness. I think we need to break up with perfection and we need to allow our kids to fail and we have to stop saving them from failure. And, and I think if we'll do all of those things and I was real with my kids and I still am with them. I've got 15, 13 and 10. And when mommy has an anxiety setback, I'm real with them. I let them know. I let them into that. And I feel like if I model that for them, my husband is beautiful at doing the exact same thing. They're going to model that back. They're going to feel safe that they can come to us when they're struggling with fear or anxiety because they know that mom has shown that they can do that too. So I think taking off our superhero capes is one of the most beautiful things that we can do. Well, that is such great advice. And I endorse that as a mom, just as a woman and as a pediatric nurse practitioner, just walking through and modeling that saying, hey, I'm having a tough day. Here's what I'm doing to combat that. You're going to have to give me a little extra grace, but these are the things that I'm doing to walk through that and they will catch that. I, I I just love everything that you said. Well, Christy, you have agreed to, you have offered generously to bless our community with a free book. So yes, if you want a copy of the book, go to our Instagram. You can find us on Instagram and 
write in the comments and tag a friend and we will put you in for a free drawing. And maybe, maybe even Christy, when this comes out, we can also share our basketball court wedding photos just for the listening audiences. <laughs> entertainment. We can show them. This was how you got married before Pinterest people. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. Well, where can we find you, Christy? Where can we connect with you to learn more? Really, it would be great if you found me uh, at my website. You can connect there, christybulware.com and the nonprofit is fearlessunite.com. I, I am on Instagram. I have my podcast called Fearless Tips and Talks. You can check that out as well and then grab the book on Amazon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us on the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast. Thank you, Jessica. Well, I don't know about you, but that was a really encouraging conversation to me. I so appreciate Christy's authenticity and her relatability in her journey. And I hope that if mental health is something that you are struggling with, that you found hope in the in the help that she offered. And now it's time for Conversation Keys, where we explore health impacts and home strategies. What I want to talk to you about today is a tough one. We're going to talk about nomo Phobia. Okay, hang with me here. Nomophobia is one of the major driving factors towards anxiety that we are experiencing in society today. And again, we can't just look at our kids and point the finger at them and have them change their behavior. We have to model that. Now you're probably thinking, okay, that's great, but what in the world are you talking about? All right, as ironically, as ironic as it is, I'm going to use my phone to tell you about your phone. So nomophobia phobia is no no mobile m o phone p h phobia no mobile phone phobia. You know, this is that feeling of complete panic when you leave your house and you check your purse or feel your pocket and you realize your phone is not there. I think everyone can relate to the fear and anxiety that grips our heart thinking, how can we even function without a phone? And we forget that most of us did live in the 1970s and 80s and even 90s in the era my kids call back then when we didn't even have phones and somehow we we all made it through the day, and but we fuss at our teens about screen time and about their phone usage, but we are just as attached to our phone. Habits and attitudes are caught, not taught, just like Christy and I talked about today. So here's some research on nomophobia. Yes, there is actually scientific research looking at the impacts of nomophobia. 70% of people feel anxious without a smartphone connection. Now, my little joke about this statistic is that probably the 70% of people who feel anxious, that 30% who don't, are probably over 70. and <laughs> They're much more comfortable without their phone. I see that in my grandparents and in older generations. They are perfectly fine to go on a walk even without a phone. And I see grandparents, their grandkids saying, but what if you get attacked by a dog? Like, what if you need emergency services? We just can't imagine a world without our phone. Nomophobia in research does correlate with poor sleeping and poor school performance. Nomophobia is linked with neck pain, headache, thumb strain. Okay, I embarrassingly confess that I have strained my thumb before doing too much on my phone. That's terrible. And eye strain. 
half of people with nomophobia so show signs of phone and or social media addiction. And young people ages 18 to 29 are at twice the risk of developing nomophobia. Okay, so now that we're thinking, okay, do I have nomophobia? Take a deep breath. Hang in there with me, y'all. Consider this, and I'm going to give you a fair warning. It's tough love. How much are we modeling nomophobia to our kids? Do you take your phone with you everywhere in the house? Or do you check it in when you walk in somewhere? Or do you take it with you to the bathroom? Hmm, that's maybe TMI. Do you take it with you in the shower? Is it in your bedroom? Is it on the couch with you? Is it attached to your body when you're in your house? Is your phone the last thing you touch at night and the first thing you reach for in the morning? Do you have physical symptoms of anxiety without your phone? Does it make your heart race? Does it make you feel sick to your stomach? Will you always turn around to go get your phone if you leave it at home? Do you get anxious and panicky when your battery's low? Do you become hyper fixated when you don't have a signal and you are repeatedly checking or moving your position, trying to find a signal and having anxiety until you find a signal? Will you sit on the floor of a dirty airport just to be close to a charger and not interrupt your phone use while it's charging? Do you have a six foot or 12 foot long phone charger so that you can use your phone even while it's charging? Here's the last one, and it hurts the most. Do you put other people's lives at risk to check your phone while you are driving? Oh, ouch. This is so tough, but before we judge our kids and share their nomophobia, we have to take inventory of our own. And parents, I'm telling you from the research that's coming out, I think phone use is one of the contributing driving factors to anxiety we are facing as a society today. So if you're struggling with anxiety, if your child is struggling with anxiety or depression or any other mental health condition, the first thing that you can do that's practical is look honestly at your phone use. So if you are overusing your phone, if you feel like you're addicted to your phone or social media, admit it. Just say, yeah, I got a problem. This is something I'm struggling with. Try to make any choice you can to choose an in-person interaction over a digital one. When you pick up your phone, think, is there any in-person interaction I could be having right now instead? Ask your kids to call you out. Oh, this is so hard. Uh, My husband even gets really defensive to this day if my kids call him out if he uses his phone while he's driving and he will try to justify it. And honey, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Um, I'm I'm just as guilty and I use my phone at home and my kids will call me out. And sometimes I can get defensive, but then I'll get over it. Intentionally leave your phone for short periods of time and small distances. Ask your kids to go for a walk and leave your phone at home. Have tech-free zones. Have tech-free times. Pick what's right for your family. Set boundaries for yourself. That might be a time boundary or it might be a place boundary. It might be that you don't have a phone in your bedroom or you don't have a phone at the table. Or it might be I don't use my phone from 7 to 9 at night. Take breaks and find balance. Here's your conversation key. What do you ask your team, ask your kids, what do you see about my phone use that seems unhealthy or frustrates you? I'll be praying for you all as I go and ask my children this same thing because I know that they're not going to say, oh, nothing, your phone use is perfectly healthy. 
they're not going to say that. I still struggle with it. But I challenge you to ask, to take an honest assessment, and to think if any of those things they say may be contributing to any anxiety that you might be feeling. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Dr. Nurse Mama, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Nurse Mama podcast, serving as your expert guide on the side to engage, equip, encourage, and empower you to navigate life's toughest issues with your teens. Tune in next week as we explore faith-based health impacts and home strategies to create a safe space in an unsafe world. Together, we'll find hope for healthy relationships. Connect with us online at drnursemama.com or on Facebook and Instagram at drnursemama. We'll see you here next week on American Family Radio.